The scripture reading this morning is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For, we, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance and made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in darkness in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy is Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men made by the Holy Spirit spoken from God. Good morning. We're really glad if you're visiting with us that you've come to worship God with us this morning. Thank you so much for your attendance and your participation in our worship service. I know there are a lot of us that have friends and loved ones in harm's way today over in the area of South Louisiana. And I know that you're gonna keep them in your prayers. I appreciate Sean for praying specifically for, for what's happening with the storm there today. And we're going to be, as a congregation, we always look for opportunities to help uh, when there's a disaster like this, especially when it's nearby and people that we know and are, are affected by that. So keep that, uh, keep that area in your prayers and your thoughts. Also, need to make mention of this, three weeks from today begins our fall gospel meeting. Brother Alan Webster is coming our way and he's going to be speaking to us about the big picture of the Bible. This is a, this is a series and we specifically selected this group of lessons uh, for him to preach at this particular meeting because we wanna help our friends and our neighbors in the community around us to know more about God's word, to know the big picture, what do I need to know if I look at the Bible and, and what can I, uh, where can I start? So his lessons are going to be specifically about that. There are some cards for you to take in the foyer and give to your friends and your neighbors. Invite them to come to this series of lessons. It starts on September 19th on a Sunday and will continue through September 22nd. So Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. Uh, we'll be here at the building uh, hearing this series of lessons. So keep that effort in your plans and keep it in your prayers as well. This morning, I want to just simply talk about why I believe the Bible. I'm not even talking about why you should believe the Bible. I'm just gonna talk to you this morning about why I have chosen to believe that the Bible is a book that comes from God and that I ought to submit my life to it. You know, sometimes when our friends and our neighbors ask us, you know, why do you believe the Bible? And, and we start to give our answers. Sometimes they say, well, you know, I, I don't believe the Bible. And, our, our instinct is sometimes to set the Bible aside and to say, okay, well, if, if you don't believe the Bible, then we're gonna have to have a discussion on some other grounds. And I'm not necessarily sure that that's the best approach. Think about it this way. Two knights meet each other in the field and one knight says to the other knight, you know, I don't believe in your sword. I, I don't think your sword is gonna be effective in cutting me. And so, the knight says, well, you don't believe in my weapon? Okay, I'm just gonna put my weapon aside and we'll fight some other way. Take the sword and fight with it. 
The Bible says the Bible is the sword of the spirit, the word of God, Ephesians chapter six, verse 17. With that in mind, here are some things to think about. When someone asks you, why do you believe the Bible? There are some inadequate answers. A lot of times when people ask us this question, why do you believe the Bible? Well, I guess I never really thought about that question. That's okay if you've never really thought about it, but you need to. You need to spend time thinking about why it is that you have committed your life, why it is that you're making your decisions based on what the Bible teaches. Another inadequate answer is, well, I just take it on faith, you know? I don't know if there's a whole lot of evidence that I can really uh, point to or any, any kind of um, things that I know that are certain about it, but I just, you know, I've just chosen to go this way. That's inadequate too, because the Bible is a historical document, as we're going to talk about in just a moment. Another inadequate answer is, well, that's just what I was raised with. Okay, so you're saying that the reason you're not a Muslim is because you weren't raised with the Quran, or the reason you're not a Buddhist is because you weren't raised in Thailand. You're, you're going to make that argument, that's just what I was raised with, and that's why you believe the Bible is true? It's inadequate. It's not convincing. And I want to point out that it's not just your neighbors, it's you that remain somewhat unconvinced. If these are the reasons that you have to give, why do you believe the Bible? They're inadequate reasons. How about this one? Well, I tried it and it changed my life. That's a little more compelling. When we think about the question, why do I believe the Bible? Well, I put it into practice and it changed my life. That's a little more compelling, but I want to point out to you that there are millions of people that live in this world whose lives have been changed by other books that claim to be divine writings. Other people have had their lives changed by listening to and following the Quran. Other people have had their lives changed by listening to and following the, the uh, Hindu scriptures, for example. People have been reading for decades books like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is supposed to give us a get another way to kind of conceptualize the world. So just because you tried this book and it changed your life is not sufficient for me to make some decisions about my life based on what the Bible teaches. Here's why I believe that the Bible is from God. This quote is not original with me, but it is a very, very good quote. Here we go. It's on your handout, by the way. So if you're trying to scribble furiously, there are handouts in the foyer and you can have this without having to write everything that's fixing to be on the screen. A helpful answer is this. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And the Bible reports, these eyewitnesses report supernatural events which occurred in fulfillment of specific prophecies. And the people who wrote the Bible, these eyewitnesses, they claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. You ask me, why do you believe the Bible? That's my answer. And the answer that I give comes right out of the Bible itself. Open your Bible, if you haven't already done this, to 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want you to look at what was just read for us a moment ago by Steve. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, Peter says the reason why he's preaching what he's preaching is because he's preaching about a reliable historical fact, and he is an eyewitness to that fact. Look at what he says, just, just starting. We're not going to read the whole passage just yet, but look at 2 Peter 1.16. He says, we, 
He's an eyewitness. He says, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming supernatural events of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's Peter saying? The things that I came and preached, Peter says, didn't come from just somebody's invention. These are reliable historical facts and I've seen them and others have seen them and these are supernatural events and they happened in the presence of many eyewitnesses. The lesson this morning is just basically this. John, why do you believe the Bible? I'm telling you why I believe the Bible. But I think there are some compelling things for you to think about as well. Why do you believe the Bible? Because it's a reliable collection of historical documents. Let's just take our definition here and break it down and think about what's implied by each one of these statements. In the first place, brothers and sisters and friends, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents. All of that is important. It's important that the Bible is reliable. It's important that the Bible is a collection and it's, a, it's important that the Bible is historical in nature. It's not mythology, it's not fable. It's not like Aesop talking about the lion with the thorn in his paw. The Bible is historical in its nature. And when you just look at what the Bible is, a reliable collection of historical documents, the Bible is contained in 66 individual volumes, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way down to Revelation. There are 66, we call them books. But when you think about what the Bible is, you go to the bookstore and you look at the Bible on the shelf and you think, well, that's one book written by one man. No, it's not. It's not written by just one man. It is a collection of 66 volumes and there are more than 40 people who wrote various parts of the Bible from all different periods of history, as far back as Moses in 1400 BC, to Daniel in 600 BC, to people like Paul and Peter in the first century AD, more than 40 authors, and they come from all kinds of different walks of life. Moses was a statesman and a shepherd. And people like David, David was a shepherd and then became a king. Other people are fishermen, other people are tax collectors. Matthew was a tax collector. They're from various walks of life. These people who recorded these historical events, more than 40 authors wrote the books of the Bible. And those 40 authors wrote in three different languages. The oldest part of the Bible, the Old Testament is written in two languages. It's written in Hebrew, the majority of it's in Hebrew. And a few parts of the Old Testament are written in the language called Aramaic. But then when you get to the New Testament, starting with Matthew and going to Revelation, it's written in the Greek language. And so as you go back and look at the ancient texts and the ancient documents of the Bible, if you're reading Old Testament documents and you're reading it in a language other than Hebrew or Aramaic, you're not reading the original, you're reading a translation, three languages. The Bible also records events, historical events that took place on three different continents. It talks about things that happened in Europe, places like Rome and Corinth. It talks about things that happened in Asia, places like Israel and Babylon, Babylon, Babylonia. And it also records things that took place in Africa, places like Egypt, for example, and Ethiopia. The Bible deals with three different continents and it treats hundreds of various subjects. 
hundreds of various subjects. The Bible talks about almost every aspect of our lives because it's a book from our creator and it deals with historical events and historical subjects, but it deals with things that relate to every aspect of life. There are, there are uh, things that convince us that what, what's taking place and what's being recorded is real, apologetics. But then there are things that are very practical and show us how we ought to treat our fellow man and how we ought to love one another, hundreds of various subjects. And the Bible was collected, it was written over a period of 1,600 years. Again, starting with Moses in about 1,400 BC, all the way down to the time of Christ and the apostles in the first century AD. And so as you go down to the bookstore and you pull the Bible off the shelf, you're not getting a document that is mythology. You're not getting a document that was written and authored by just one person. You're getting a collection of historical, reliable documents written by many different authors over a period of 1,600 years. And by the way, later in our definition, every single one of the authors of the volumes that make up your Bible Every single one of them claims that what they have written is from God himself. It's not a message that they made up. It's not just a, 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 you know, some thoughts on life that they decided to jot down and it found its way into the Bible. Every single one of these books claims that it is divine in its origin. It's reliable. It's a collection of historical documents. Next. I want you to look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, and I want you to notice that the people who wrote the Bible are eyewitnesses. Remember what Peter said? We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we talked about Jesus to you, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Brothers and sisters and friends, that is important. It's important that the people who wrote the Bible had seen the events that they recorded. You know, as time goes on, we tend to mythologize things that happened in the past. We tend to develop legends about things that we admire. And sometimes the claim is made that the Bible was written by people like that, that it was written very late and that people had thought about Jesus and they'd been changed by some of the teachings of the early Christians and somebody decided to codify this and write it down. And when they did, they developed the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead and things like that. Nope, that's not the way the Bible's written. The Bible is written by people who said we are eyewitnesses of the things we're talking about. First John chapter one, verses one through three. Here's what John says, watch this. John, by the way, was one of the apostles who spent time with Jesus. And here's how he begins the book of first John. That which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it, John says. We testify it to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. John is saying, I have seen and I have heard and I've even touched with my hands the person that I'm talking to you about. I've seen him, he's risen from the dead, Jesus Christ, and we can have fellowship with him if you'll listen to what I'm saying, John says. Acts 4, 19 and 20, Peter and John, soon after the ascension of Jesus, were in the temple preaching about him and the Jewish authorities arrested Peter and John and they charged them that they should stop talking about Jesus. Don't talk about him anymore. And Peter and John's response to these people that had arrested them was this, whether it is right in the sight of God 
to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We are eyewitnesses. We saw Jesus risen from the dead, they said. And they decided to write these things down. First Peter chapter five, verse one, here's Peter, the apostle. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. What's your point? My point is when you read this book, you are reading a collection of reliable historical documents that was written by eyewitnesses, people who had seen the things that they're writing about. They didn't get this secondhand from other people. And if they did, they tell you, that's where I got this. These people were primarily eyewitnesses. Luke, by the way, does tell you some of the things that I'm writing, I've gotten from eyewitnesses. Watch this in the introduction to Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke is saying, and Luke, by the way, is a historian and he's a doctor, he's a physician. And Luke is saying, I've been studying these facts about Jesus and I've been talking to the eyewitnesses and it seemed good to me to write an orderly account. He's interested in chronology. He's interested in setting things straight and he is writing something and even he claims that he had divine help in writing the things that he's produced in the book of Luke. Written by eyewitnesses. You know, when Judas went and hung himself and there were only 11 apostles in Acts chapter one and they had to select another apostle so that there would be 12. You remember what one of the requirements for the apostle that would replace Judas was? What was the requirement? If there's gonna be 12 apostles, what's a requirement for somebody to be an apostle? Had to be a witness, an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, it had to be somebody who had witnessed with his eyes the many miracles of Jesus. He had followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. And so they selected Matthias because Matthias fit that bill. Matthias was with Jesus and had heard Jesus and had seen the risen Lord. And the lot fell to Matthias to become the next apostle after Judas died because he was an eyewitness. So the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses, and now this is important, watch this, number three, during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. I don't like the crime dramas on TV, it kind of creeps me out and gives me bad dreams and things like that, but back when I watched crime dramas, okay, there's been a murder, and the cops come to you and they ask you, you're a suspect in this murder, what's your alibi? The worst thing you can say to the cops at that point is, oh, I was by myself at home watching TV. In fact, I was holed up for three days, you know? Nobody saw me coming or going for three days during the time of the murder, but you're just gonna have to trust me. That's my alibi, all by myself. That's the worst possible alibi you can give. Much better if you could say, I've got a lot of eyewitnesses that saw me. I was at a soccer game and there were hundreds of people and I scored the winning goal and everybody carried me off the field on their shoulders. I've got a lot of people that can tell you that's where I was when the murder occurred. Much better when there's a lot of eyewitnesses, right? Think about this. The Bible's not just written by people who are eyewitnesses that said, I saw miracles and I saw supernatural events and I saw Jesus risen from the dead. But there were others who said, yep, he saw it because I saw it too. In the presence and during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians 15 verses three through nine. Great passage to contemplate. 
Paul says, I delivered to you of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. Paul said, that's what I've been preaching. And he appeared, it says, to a bunch of people after his resurrection. I've got it underlined on the screen. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. And then he appeared, we talked about this in our Bible class this morning in the auditorium. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. He showed up in a room like this, I guess, and talked to more than 500 people. And they were all convinced that he was the risen Lord. And it says most of whom are still alive. So Paul is saying when 1 Corinthians is being written, you can go and find these people and you can talk to them and you can ask, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is he really risen? Yeah, I saw him. Go find another brother. Yeah, I saw him too. And then he says, those some have fallen asleep. He said, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Jesus appeared to many, many, many eyewitnesses. Acts 2, verses 22 and 23. Seven weeks after the crucifixion of Jesus, when we're reading in Acts 2, seven weeks after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. And now he's ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. He's in heaven. And in Acts 2, when Peter begins to preach to the crowds that do not yet believe in Jesus, listen to how he starts his sermon. And put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of these people 2,000 years ago. Men of Israel, Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter told his audience, some of you that are here saw Jesus feed the hungry. Some of you that are here saw him walk on water. You saw him cause the blind to see. You saw these mighty works and miracles that he did. And nobody in the crowd raised their hand and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, Peter. Those were hoaxes. Those never happened. No, everybody acknowledged that what Jesus had done was miraculous. They didn't have any other way to explain it. All they could do is try to discredit Jesus and then finally just crucify him because there was no way to explain otherwise what he was doing. It was miraculous. It was supernatural. And many, many eyewitnesses, even those that didn't believe, saw and they couldn't naysay. They couldn't say that what Jesus had done was somehow just some kind of trick. You know that God attested him in your very presence. In Acts 26, verses 24 through 26, when Paul is on trial, he's giving his defense, his apology, his, his, not an apology like I'm sorry, but his defense of his ministry and his faith. And as he's saying these things in his defense, Festus, who's the Roman governor, says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Much learning has made you crazy. You're out of your mind. You're driven mad. And Paul says, I'm not out of my mind excellent Festus, Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Why do you believe the Bible, John? I believe the Bible because the Bible contains historical evidence and reliable rational words that talk about documented historical events, some of them supernatural, and they're words of truth and reason. 
For the king knows about these things. Notice what Paul says. He's turning to King Agrippa, who's there as well. Agrippa's been in Israel and Agrippa knows the kind of person that Jesus was. He says, I speak to him boldly. I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner. The things that I'm talking about, Agrippa, I know you know that they're true. These things were written during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And all somebody had to do was raise their hand and say, wait a minute. Peter said Jesus walked on water, but no, he didn't. I saw him fall right into the ocean. Nope, didn't happen. We saw him walk on water too. It's not like the crime drama where I'm all by myself and I decide to make up some stories and I, you know, nobody can say yes or no, that really happened, didn't happen. Nope, there were people around and they could see that all the things that I'm claiming really did happen because they saw it too. Now, sometimes people will say by way of objection, okay, so this book, It's written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, but you know what? We're several centuries removed from all those eyewitnesses and we still can't trust it because it's been translated so many times, right? You've heard this, I'm sure, from your friends. We've we've translated the Bible so many times, it's been copied and recopied and what they're talking about is the old whispering game. Telephone, sometimes people call it, where person number one gives a message And then he whispers it to person number two and everybody kind of sits in a line. And then person number two takes the message and tries to repeat it to person number three very quietly. And it goes on and goes on. And what always happens by the time you get to number five, it's completely different from what person number one said. And a lot of people say, well, that's the way the Bible is. Those eyewitnesses may have written down accurately, historically what they saw, but you can't be sure that you are reading an accurate account of what they saw. Not true, because here's the thing historically, when people went about the process of making copies and copies of the copies and copies of the copies of the copies of the early New Testament writings, they didn't just go to one source. They didn't just take one document that they had, you know, message number three down there in the chain and copy that. No, they went and found other copies and they use those as well. So, to use our whispering game analogy, it's kind of like person number five on the screen there, the last guy to get the message. If this is gonna be true to the analogy of how the Bible is recorded and copied and translated, person number five doesn't just hear from person number four. Person number five gets to go and sit down and interview at length person number four, number three, number two, and number one, and ask them, what did you say? What did you hear? And then person number five gets to, based on what those four people say, he gets to make a judgment about what the original message was. And guess, by the way, who he's going to give the most credence to. Guess who gets the most weight? Person number one. That's the way the Bible has been copied and translated over the centuries. And there is software and there is evidence all just a Google away to confirm that what I'm saying here is true. The Bible is the best attested historical document in all of ancient history. As a matter of fact, if you can't trust that the Bible is really an accurate representation of what the original authors wrote, you can't trust any ancient document, period because the same methodology that helps us to understand that Homer wrote the Iliad is the exact same methodology that we're talking about here. It's not just a whispering game. It was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And now go back to 1 Peter chapter, or 2 Peter chapter uh, chapter one. 
They report, these eyewitnesses do, supernatural events. Now here's why I really believe the Bible is true. I believe the Bible is true because these eyewitnesses, they didn't just make up a bunch of rules and regulations. That would have been easy to do. You know, honor your father and mother, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet. It would have been easy to just make up a bunch of rules and regulations, write those in a book and say, this is the word of God. Would have been easy to do that. But the Bible is so much more than just that. The Bible is those rules and regulations, yes, but they are couched in, they are seated in this record of all these amazing supernatural things that are unbelievable if they weren't so historically verifiable and reliable. Supernatural events. So look at what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter one. We didn't follow cunningly devised fables. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then Peter talks about in 2 Peter 1.17, the transfiguration of Jesus, which was a miracle. Jesus went up high on a mountain and the Bible says his countenance changed and the color of his clothing became bright. He glowed, we would say today. And Peter says, as we were there on the mountain, we heard the voice of God himself. And God said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. It's a miracle. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. We're eyewitnesses of these things. It was supernatural and I'm telling you about it, Peter says, because the supernatural things confirm that all these other rules and regulations that we're talking about are true and accurate. And there is a gospel that everybody ought to listen to. Supernatural events. Acts 2.32, on the day of Pentecost, we just talked about a moment ago. Peter stands up and he pronounces this, the Jesus I'm preaching was raised up by God and of that we, the apostles, are witnesses. We saw him raised from the dead. Supernatural events. Why does Peter have to say any of that? Because it's the supernatural events that give confirmation to the validity of the message. You think about the Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea, those millions of people that were out there in the wilderness. When Moses wrote down how God parted the Red Sea in Exodus 14 and they crossed over on dry land, those millions of people could have said, Moses, that's not the way it happened. You can't put that in a book and say it's from God but they'd seen it. They'd walked on dry land. The conquest of Jericho in Joshua chapter six, they marched around the city for seven days and the Bible says the walls fell down flat and the people walked in and conquered the city of Jericho by the grace and power of God. Nobody raised their hand and said, wait a minute, Joshua, that didn't happen. It was a supernatural event and the entire nation knew it had happened. They didn't naysay it. Fire fell from heaven on Mount Carmel when uh, Elijah was having the contest with the false prophets in 1 Kings 19. Nobody said, no, that didn't happen. That wasn't accurate. People were eyewitnesses of these things. Jesus walking on the water, Matthew 14, healing the multitudes. Incidentally, he didn't just heal Jesus privately. He didn't just come to one person in a quiet secluded room and say, okay, you've got a malady here. I'm gonna fix that. And you know, you can go tell people if you want to. Jesus did his miracles in front of multitudes and nobody, contrary to the miracles so-called that you hear about today, nobody said, he is just a charlatan. He's not really doing those things. The Bible consistently records that when Jesus healed the sick and caused the blind to see and raised the dead, that people were mystified and amazed. They could not explain what was happening any other way than this is a miracle. He fed more than 5,000 people on one occasion. Mark chapter six, verse 30. He raised people from the dead. 
He just said to people that were dead, wake up, get up, and immediately they obeyed. These eyewitnesses then are reporting supernatural events to you and me, and those supernatural events are what give validity to everything else that we read about in the Old and New Testaments. Eyewitnesses. By the way, these events, they didn't just come out of nowhere. These supernatural things like God delivering the Israelites to the Red Sea or the conquest of Jericho or Jesus walking on the water or Jesus being raised from the dead didn't just come out of nowhere. They are fulfillments of things that God had already prophesied were going to happen. And that's important too. The fact that God told you what he was going to do, then he did it and it was amazing and supernatural. And then it was recorded by people who are eyewitnesses. That's the way the Bible is as a document. God tells you what he's going to do, then God does it, then eyewitnesses record it, and other eyewitnesses confirm it. That's the way the Bible's written. They took place in fulfillment of prophecy. Look at what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. In other words, the fact that we saw Jesus on that Mount of Transfiguration, because that's Peter's point in 2 Peter, that was part of something that was confirmed by prophecy. The prophetic words more fully confirmed. Prophecy. Consider just the crucifixion of Jesus. Did you know that there are more than 300 specific Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' life and his death? And as you look at the crucifixion and the account of the crucifixion, God told you what he was going to do centuries sometimes before it actually occurred. Months in advance, Jesus said, Matthew 16, 21, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. Months before it happened, Jesus knew that was going to happen. 33 years before it happened, a prophet spoke to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as she cradled that baby in her arms and he said, a sword is going to pierce your soul also. 700 years before Jesus was even born, Isaiah 53 records the prophecy of someone that was going to be a servant of God, that God was going to send to suffer and to bear the sins of many. And he was going to be quiet during his trial. He was going to be like a sheep led to the slaughter, Isaiah 53, verse 7. And he was going to do that for our sins and our transgressions. And all that's prophesied 700 years before God did it. Oh, that's not far enough back. How about this? A thousand years in advance. Psalm 22 records in graphic detail the conditions of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And you know what's really amazing about Psalm 22? Crucifixion had not even been invented a thousand years before Christ. The Babylonians invented crucifixion as a means of torture and the Romans perfected it centuries after these things were being written. They took place in fulfillment of prophecy. The supernatural events you read about in the Bible, these things were spoken of by God, sometimes centuries before they actually happened. Now go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, and I want you to look at this. Peter says, you will do well to pay attention to these things. Maybe you're a Christian and you're thinking about, you know, some of those answers you gave at first, John, I was just raised that way, or I never really thought about why I believe the Bible. Peter says, you will do well to pay attention to what we're talking about this morning. And maybe you're not a Christian and you're thinking, you know, I'm not really sure about the credibility of any of this. Peter's saying to you, you will do well to pay attention to these things. 
And here's the illustration he uses. He says, these things are like a lamp shining in a dark place. You ever walk into a dark room and you're so thankful there's a nightlight so you don't step on a Lego in the middle of the night, you know, those of you who are parents. You're thankful that there is light, but it's just a little bit of light, it's a lamp. And what Peter says is gonna happen is, he says, as you continue to pay attention to these things, as you continue to study these things, it's like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You're going to get closer and closer and closer to Jesus Christ as you pay attention to the historical reliability and the verifiable facts of the Bible. Peter says, you need this. You need to listen to these things. You need to pay attention to these things because these things matter. And it's like a little lamp right now, but later on it'll be like the morning dawn, brightness and light everywhere. They took place in fulfillment of prophecy. And then this, why do you believe the Bible, John? I believe because the eyewitnesses who wrote the Bible, they claim that the words that they wrote are divine in origin. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The people who wrote this book say that the messages that they wrote, yes, it was their experience, they were eyewitnesses, but when they sat down and put pen to paper and wrote these words, they all universally claim that the words that they wrote came from God himself. So God uses their experience, he uses their, their, their memories and, and their recollections of things, but God uses those things and has them say exactly what needs to be said in the perfect way so that you and I can have an accurate, reliable, verifiable testimony of the things that have happened. The Bible's full of phrases like this. Thus says the Lord. That's an arrogant claim if I'm just making something up, just writing it down. And the Lord said, Boy, that's blasphemous if God didn't really speak to me. God said, those kinds of expressions, the Bible's full of them. The Bible claims from start to finish to be God's book, to be a collection of historically verifiable documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And they record supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies and they claim that these things came from God, not from man. That's why I believe the Bible. When somebody asks you, why do you believe the Bible? What answer will you give? How will you respond? Scripture tells us that we're supposed to be ready to give an answer to those who ask us a reason for the hope that's within us. First Peter chapter three, verse 15. Maybe all of us could do well to spend time asking the question, is this really a book worth giving my life to? Are the things contained herein really all that important? Those questions matter and they demand an answer. Thanks for your kind attention this morning. If you're here and you're not a Christian, and you've been studying the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've been giving attention to the things that Peter talked about just a moment ago. 
and you've been watching that lamp for a while and you've been thinking about who Jesus is and you've been thinking, I need to give my life to him. I need to become a Christian because I know that I can only find salvation and forgiveness in him. If that's you and you're ready to put Christ on in baptism this morning, that's the final culminating act of becoming a New Testament Christian, by the way. When you repent of your sin, confess that Jesus is Lord, and then you're baptized in water, you become a Christian. If you're ready to make that commitment this morning, or maybe if you need to respond and you just say, I need prayers. I'm struggling with something and I need for the church to pray with me and to pray for me. We're happy to accommodate those requests. Make your way down the aisle as together we stand and sing.